from the Teaching and Learning Collaborative at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, where we dive deep into the art and science of teaching and learning. My guest today is Dr. Sandra McGuire, an internationally acclaimed learning specialist who has been teaching students a rich tapestry of strategies for improving their study skills and achieving academic success for over 50 years as a professor of chemistry and as the director emerita of the Center for Academic Success at Louisiana State University. She is the author of multiple books, including Teach Students How to Learn, which we read here at Wentworth alongside our colleagues from the Colleges of the Fenway as part of our guilt-free book club this spring semester, and we enjoyed it tremendously. Dr. Sandra McGuire, welcome to the CoLab. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It is a thrill to have you here. Now, Dr. McGuire, you have published multiple books that have had a major impact in the field of teaching and learning. You've mentored tens of thousands of students. You've even accepted awards from US presidents. We could, we could spend the rest of the show <laughs> listing your accomplishments. Literally, they're so great. So don't be shy in bringing them up, but let's get right into it. Something that I find truly remarkable about you and your work is that throughout your lifetime of accomplishment, you've continuously stayed open to seeing the world in new ways. One example of that that shines through for me is when you say in your, in your book, Teach Students How to Learn, that in your early days as a, as a professor, when your college chemistry students were struggling in your class, you would sometimes suggest that chemistry might not be for them. But later on in your career, you came to completely change your mind, realizing the limits of your previous beliefs. And you write that you no longer believe that some students are not capable of success in certain fields. And in fact, you have come to believe the very opposite that every single student who walks through your classroom door has the innate capacity to excel in your course. How did you come to change your perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, it has been evolving. But I would say that the signature event that happened when I got to LSU and I met this wonderful learning strategist, Sarah Baird, and uh, I had heard that she was an excellent learning strategist. She got great results from students. And I sat in on a workshop and Sarah told the students about how when she walks across campus, she gets stopped. There are people who've been, who are flunking and they're making A's now. And I literally thought that she was kind of just making this up to motivate students, but she was not. And so I started teaching students the kinds of strategies that I've learned over the years and have developed. And I started seeing exactly the same thing where a student could be making an F one day and then two weeks later, they're making A's and B's. And then I really understood that the main difference between students who are acing classes and students who are failing is not necessarily any difference in ability, but it's just that the students who are not doing well have never been taught the strategies that the students who are making A's are using in order to learn the material and make those A's. I've worked with students at all different levels and the basic principles are things that most students have never learned. And so no matter what level they are, when they learn these strategies, then it's like night and day, the way that they can become more efficient learners and then it's motivating to them to see the great results they're getting when so many of these students had concluded themselves that they probably were not going to be capable of succeeding at this level. So it's really, really, it's fun for me. Absolutely. It sounds fun. 
One way that you describe these types of skills in your work is metacognition. Can you tell us a little bit more about what metacognition means and the role it plays in your work? Absolutely, yes. And I'll tell you why I settled on the construct of metacognition as a way to introduce students to the fact that they have control over their own learning. I had heard the term metacognition when I was at Cornell University. Uh, Outside my office, there was a copy machine. And I saw a lot of students, they were gathered around and they were using this term metacognition, metacognition. They seemed to be excited about it. I had no idea what it was. I didn't think I needed to know what it was. But then when I got to LSU and found that we really could teach students how to learn, how to improve their own learning, I started reading everything I could get my hands on. And I came across this construct of metacognition. And it was really appealing to me because I knew that it would probably capture students' attention in a way that talking about study skills would not. Because for many of these students, if we start talking about study skills, their eyes are going to glaze over. They don't want to hear anything about study skills. But when we talk about metacognition, that's a term that they have not heard, and they're intrigued by it. And so when I talk with students, I have them deconstruct the word. We'll start with, have you ever heard this word? Most of them have not. And then I'll ask them, what comes to mind when you hear the word cognition? And they'll say things like the mind or thinking or thought. Then I explain that when we put the prefix meta onto a word, that just means doing that thing about that thing. And so if cognition is thinking, then metacognition is thinking about your own thinking. And I give an example, and I I will say, because some of the STEM students have heard of meta-research, and I'll remind them that meta-research is just research about other research. And so I tell them that metacognition is being able to think about your own thinking, then I want to keep it simple enough so that they really understand what it is. And so I'll say, it's kind of like if you had a big brain outside your brain looking at what your brain is doing, and that big brain would be asking your brain questions. And it would be saying, does she really understand this information or did she just memorize it last night because the test was today? No, Dr. McGuire, the metacognitive strategies you describe may seem like familiar study skills to some of our listeners, but surprisingly, many students enter college without ever having learned them. They include encouraging students to read actively by previewing, paraphrasing, and annotating texts by hand, approaching homework as an opportunity for productive failure, working through problems before looking at solved examples, studying collaboratively in pairs or in groups, creating practice exams, teaching the material to a real or even an imagined audience, because in doing so, learners necessarily move from rote memorization to deeper levels of synthesis and conceptual understanding. Why do you think it is that so many students come into higher education settings never having learned those essential study skills? I will ask students, uh, what did your teachers in high school do the class period before the test? And I was shocked by the response. I thought they were gonna say, well, they reviewed the information that was gonna be on the test. We went over the topics and we might've had a study guide or something like that. And so I was all set to say, yes, but we don't do that in college. You have to do that for yourself. But that's not what they said. What they said was, well, they gave us the test questions and they gave us the answers. 
And I was shocked to hear that. And so what happens is when students get to our institutions, they've never been put in a situation where they have to really develop learning strategies or study skills because the day before the test, they're given the items and the answers. It just turns out that students never had to develop this skill. And when I talk with students, I really just use reflection questions because I used to tell students what to do. But then I realized that the, when we ask them questions and they come up with the information that we would be telling them, then it is much more, I guess it's kind of rooted now in their souls and they're not going to forget it. And they will act on that information in a way that they never would if we told them what to do. That's a very beautiful insight. And that's something that one of my professors and when I went to graduate school for education would just reinforce over and over again, that they had this idea of constructivism, that knowledge has to be constructed in every individual's own consciousness. And we can't just put it in them, pour it in them like an empty vessel. That metaphor is just isn't how learning works. So it seems like you, you've, you know, little by little come to that understanding on your own through your experience as a professor. Absolutely. And, you know, I first heard about constructivism when I was in graduate school, my first uh, educational psychology course. And I really latched onto that because it just made so much sense to me. And then social constructivism, which is a subset of constructivism, where the idea is that we build knowledge through interacting and talking with others. And that really resonated with me. And so that's one of the reasons that I love to do think pair shares with students. And so one of the reflection questions, for example, I'll ask them is, what's the difference between studying and learning? And I'll have them think of their own answer and then share it with a partner. And I can just see the, the buzz that goes on in the room, which was surprising to me. One of the reasons that I didn't use the reflection questions, uh, I, I remember when I used to think reflection questions, I don't have time for that. I can much more efficiently explain things to them. Why am I going to throw out questions and have them give me back mamsy-pamsy answers that I can't do anything with? But I went to a conference once. I saw the presenter use that technique, and it was so powerful because I saw how everybody in the group was really actively engaged. And another surprise for me was when I started doing with students, they really get into it. There's no hesitation, and they will give me answers to questions that I never would have thought about in a million years. And I'll give you a quick example of that. When I was talking to a group of students at the LSU Dental School, and I asked, what's the difference between studying and learning? This one young man said, well, the difference for me is this. He said, studying is focusing on the what's, but learning is focusing on the why's, the how's, and the what ifs. He said, and I find that if I focus on the what's and forget the what's, I can't recreate them. But if I focus on the whys, the hows, and the what ifs, even if I forget the whats, I can recreate them. And it's just, for me, uh, every single interaction with a group of faculty or a group of students is exciting and interesting because I learned something new. Oh, one time somebody asked, don't you get tired of talking about the same thing during the same presentation? I said, but it's not the same presentation because every time we have a different group of students or a different group of faculty, I hear different things from the reflection questions. Uh, they have different needs and it's just exciting. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Something else you've been writing about recently is metacognitive equity. Can you tell us a little bit more about what metacognitive equity means to you? 
Yes. And I actually came up with that term summer of 2020 after the George Floyd incident, and everybody was talking about equity. And I started thinking about why it is that so many students don't have those strategies. The students who are not doing well don't have the strategies that the students who are doing well do. And it dawned on me that the opportunity to develop metacognitive skills is so different when you look at different demographics among students. So for example, um, low-income and minoritized students, typically when they enter high school, their literacy level is grades below the students who come from upper income levels. We find that students from better resourced schools who have opportunities to take AP courses, to take IB courses, they've actually been exposed to the type of thinking that will allow them to go to higher levels in Bloom's taxonomy. Uh, Even the level of challenge in different types of schools is so different. And so it dawned on me that I could use the term metacognitive equity to talk about the difference in thinking skills between the different demographics, but not due to any lack of ability, but just the fact that they haven't been exposed to that. And so I talk about closing that metacognitive equity gap by teaching students about metacognition, about Bloom's taxonomy, about specific learning strategies that they can implement that will allow them to perform as well as any student from any other group. That's wonderful. You know, something I was, I was learning about recently is that Benjamin Bloom and colleagues developed this taxonomy is a taxonomy of learning objectives. So it's a little bit different from the way we kind of think about it today. Um, what's your what's your take on that? Yeah, it's very interesting because the other thing that not a lot of people know is that when they developed the taxonomy, they didn't mean it necessarily to be hierarchical. I think that Bloom's taxonomy is a wonderful tool to help students understand that there are different types of learning and thinking. And the reason that I think it's so important is that if a student has only memorized and regurgitated, and we say, we want you to create something new, then they don't really know what that is in the context of the different types of ways that they can think. And so I like also it as a pyramid, even though I know it's not hierarchical, I think it's helpful for us to talk about remembering as being the base of Bloom's taxonomy because uh, Josh, more often recently, I have found students who think that they don't have to memorize anything. Uh, They'll say, well, you know, Dr. McGuire, back in your day, you had to memorize stuff. We don't have to memorize anything. We can just look it up. We can Google it. And so I try to get students to understand that you can't solve problems with information you've just looked up on the net. You have to have information in your head. And unfortunately, this notion that I don't have to know anything has permeated itself up into the nation's best medical schools. Our, our older daughter, uh, when she was rounding, this was early in her career, and she would round with residents. And she said one day she asked this young man, is it okay to prescribe drugs like Sudafed and Actifed to pregnant women? And she said she thought he was going to stop and think and say, well, it constricts blood vessels, so probably not. She said instead he whipped out his, it would be his iPhone, the PDA at the time. He called up the physician's desk reference, read a few lines and said no. And she asked him why, and he was absolutely clueless. And so I want students to know that it is important to have some information that I tell students that you know as well as your first name, not your middle name, but you know very well. And then up from that, I say, is understanding where now you understand the information to the 
point that you could explain it to your eight-year-old nephew in words they understand. You can give them analogies and examples from their life. Then up to applying, now you can use the information to solve problems you've never seen before, up to analyzing where you could take any concept, break it into simpler concepts. And I just take them through the levels to explain it. And that's when I get the reaction, wow, this is really, really helpful. And wow is how I feel when I hear that story about your daughter and, and the medical school, because I definitely could look that up on WebMD myself, but I want my physician to have all the background knowledge and be able to think critically you know, about what's really going on, because the answer isn't always going to be clear in medicine. I come in with certain symptoms and you know, you're a detective. I mean, you have to ask questions and be, be creative, really. Um, exactly. There's a, a sketch from the old Carol Burnett show. And it is hilarious, but it shows a student who's just graduated from dental school and he doesn't really know anything. So he's trying to look up everything in the book while he's working on this patient. And Harvey Corman and Tim Conway are the two. And so the question is, you know, do you want to be like this dentist? And they see that, no, I really do need to be able to think critically, have this information so I can solve problems. Yes, exactly. It sounds like that sense of humor, that joke stands the test of time because it remains just as true today as it was then. People always are looking for a shortcut and you can't have that type of shortcut if you really want to have expertise. Dr. McGuire, something I really value about your work is you are really committed explicitly to building a more just and liberated world through education and giving, you know, opportunity to, to all students and believing in all students' innate capacities. And so I just want to, you to just ask you to reflect on a little bit about that DEI journey that you've been on in your life and in this kind of mm -hmm. fraught moment in our society. Well, let's talk about the importance of education. And that actually stems from my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, who was the daughter of a freed slave. She was Effie Jane Gordon Yancey. Her dad was Isaac Gordon. And, and she'd actually had two years of college herself, which was very, very rare back in those days. And my first cousin actually just reminded me when I talked with her last week that my grandmother actually taught poor whites and blacks in Greensburg on her porch. She would teach them how to read. So I like to think that my grandmother actually had the first integrated education setting in Louisiana. And she had nine kids and she decided that all of her kids were going to go to college because throughout the African-American community, you know, we heard over and over and over again that education is your best ticket to a better life. And we understood that education was something that was held from folks who were in slavery. They wanted to be able to read, they wanted to learn, but they were denied the opportunity to do that. And so if we had that opportunity, then it was our responsibility to do it. Well, all nine of her kids did go to college and seven of them got advanced degrees. And those of us in my generation, they're 13 in my generation, and we saw the example of our parents and aunts and uncles who would travel to the Midwest in the summer, you know, leave their families. And so that told us and showed us the importance of education. Um, but at the same time, we were told that you have to make sure that you're bringing other people along. I'm really so passionate about making sure that there are opportunities for minoritized students because I know the barriers that have been put in place and are still in place. And so many of those students have been told that, you know, you're not going to be good at this. You're not going to be able to succeed. And I want those students to know that that is not true 
but it doesn't work just to tell them that's not true. You can learn, you can excel. Actually first help them understand if they're having difficulty, why they were having difficulty and then giving them the tools and strategies that will allow them to pretty dramatically and rapidly increase that performance. It's a virtuous cycle, what you're doing. You know, you're bringing real optimism and hope to people who have maybe not achieved academic success and allowing them to see their capability. And what you were telling me is just so incredible about your great-grandparents literally defying every odd and societal expectation and going from a, a generation that was born into slavery to higher education literally right away. And I know, you know, even, even you personally, you grew up in Louisiana in a Jim Crow segregated society. You bring such a unique perspective to, you know, higher education and, and leadership, just given your family story. And I think that's the other reason I'm so passionate about this, because growing up in the Jim Crow South, where Baton Rouge was very, very segregated, and I actually integrated Glen Oaks High School. Uh, I was a junior at the time. I went the third year of integration, and it was a very, very hostile environment. But I never felt that I could not excel. We had always been told that nobody was better than we were. We weren't better than anybody else, but nobody was better than we were. And I think any family can do this. I say in the book that my kids aren't any smarter than anybody else's kids. Our older daughter is a faculty member at Baylor College of Medicine. And our younger daughter is, uh, she's an opera singer in Berlin. And she has a PhD in neuroscience from Oxford. And, and she writes the books with me. And I used to think they were really, really smart. But then when I learned this thing about metacognition, I realized that, no, they're not smarter than anybody else. It's what we did with them when they were growing up that developed the thinking skills that they had. That's fantastic. And I love the humility you bring to it. You're like, my kids aren't any more geniuses than anyone else's. You bring the, you know, the attribution theory into it. You're like, you know, I could decide that it's because we had these great genes and this great background and my great grandmother, but actually it's because of what I did as a mom. You know, I read to them and, and I encouraged their critical thinking in all these organic ways as they were growing up by asking questions and asking them to kind of dive deeper as they were investigating the world and developing their brains as kids. And one of the things that I, I learned, you know, speaking of the difference in metacognitive strategies that have been made available to students, there was a research study that looked, that talked about the, the different kinds of questions that students from socioeconomically disadvantaged students are asked compared to students of higher socioeconomic status. And I was really intrigued by this, but what they found was that students in high-income families they were routinely asked when they were very young, they were asked questions that the adult knew the answer to. So it might be, oh, what color is my shirt? And the kid says black and it's yay. Or, you know, where's your nose? The kid touches the nose, yay. But kids from lower income families were asked questions that the adult didn't know the answer to. For example, did your father tell you when he's coming home? Or did you see where I put my keys? Or, you know, so when the kid goes to school, then the kids from higher income families, they're used to being asked questions that the teacher knows the answer to, and they know that they get rewarded if they tell the right answer to this question. Whereas a kid from a lower income family, the, the teacher might ask, well, what color is my shirt? And the shirt is red. And the student is thinking, well, I know she knows this shirt, her shirt is red, so she must be asking me something else. And so they don't say anything 
And then the teacher assumes that they don't know their colors. So it's just this kind of um, insidious cycle that I am on a personal crusade <laughs> to try to break. Absolutely. Something that else that I, I love uh, from your work is just how your, your younger daughter, who is, you know, moved on to be an opera singer, has really introduced you to the world of the arts. So I was just wondering how it's been for you to add that A to STEM and kind of get STEAM going on as you uh, appreciate that and become a, a more well-rounded educator. When she grew up, well, she, she did a lot of musical theater in high school. And I knew that she was talented in music, but the idea was that she was just going to do it for fun. So we thought that she was going to do science like everybody else in the family. And she stayed in science until she completed this PhD in neuroscience. And one time somebody asked her, well, if you knew you were going to be a singer, why did you stay in science so long? And her response was, well, if I'd known that you could live in this family without a terminal degree in science, I would have left a long time ago. But when she got to uh, Oxford, she, that's when she told me that she was going to become an opera singer. And I will, I will never forget the reaction. I went, opera? Opera? How did you even get interested in that? Because, you know, we never listened to opera. My introduction to opera was the cartoons, you know, the Bugs Bunny thing. But I delved into this, uh, both feet as usual. So I subscribed to Opera News, Classical Singer. I bought all these CDs of the operas that she was going to be performing in so that I could watch them and see what I was going to be looking at. And so I really appreciate it now. I now see that taking the arts away, which is what we've done with so many students when we make them focus on these standardized tests where it's in math and ELA, English and language arts. Um, and then we take away the things that make school fun. They don't get to do art. They don't get to do drama. They don't get to do music. And so I think that is such a, a sin really for students because I also think that it's the humanities that make us human. And so I think that it's so important for folks in STEM to have access to those creative outlets to make a, well, a well-rounded person. Yeah, absolutely. And now what was it like writing the books with your, with your daughter? Oh, she's actually the reason that the books exist. Because what happened was I had been speaking about these things around the, the country since around maybe 2002, 2003. So fairly often people would say, you know, oh, you need to write a book about this. And I would say, oh, yeah, I, I don't have time now. I'll write one when I retire. And uh, so I retired and I was not about to write a book, but I keynoted a conference. And afterwards, this little guy came up and he said, you keep talking about everybody else's book. We want to read your book. And so I was telling Stephanie that story. And Stephanie said, mom, I could write this book for you. And I said, what? You don't think I could write this book? And so she said, well, no, it's not that I don't think you can, but I don't think you will. And so I said, well, thank you very much, but I'll write it. And then she said, well, let me send you a sample chapter. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, yep, send me whatever you want. And she sent me a sample chapter that was so much better than anything I ever would have come up with in a million years. I said, okay, we can write this book together. And I'll tell you the difference, uh, Josh. I would have had the information in the book, but people say the books are fun to read. And that's her contribution, you know, the metacognition, schmetacognition, those kinds of things. And so she looked at a lot of the videos that just lots of YouTube videos of me online. And she looked at those and she said that her main goal was to give the book the voice 
that I have so that when people read the book, it would almost be like they were in a workshop with me. Well, I can tell you 100% she succeeded in capturing your voice because I watched a lot of YouTube videos and then read the book. And I literally felt like you were speaking to me as I read the pages of the book. Wow. I will let her know that. And that's what people have said. So, yep, that's what she was going for. That's wonderful. Now, tell me about the progression of the books, because it started you start off with a faculty directed audience and then towards students and then towards parents. Why that progression? I realized that there were so many students who were reading the faculty book that it'd probably be a good idea for us to write a book to and for students instead of having students have to read a book that was that was written for faculty about students. And so that's when the idea of teach yourself how to learn came about. And then the parent book was only released in January of this year. There was a publisher who had read the other two. And he said, parents need to know this information because if parents know it, then they can help their kids in high school. So that's how that came about. You've taken your work and kind of spun it to be directed at these three very different audiences college faculty members, college students, and parents. And throughout that process, what have you come to realize about what is at the heart or the essence of what it means to to be educated or to educate? To me, to be educated means that you know that you can always learn and that you can learn anything as long as you put your mind to it and you have the appropriate strategies. I have one email that I share that was sent to me by, uh, this was a a person, he had a PhD in the social sciences. I met him at one of our accreditation body conferences. He was moderating the workshop. And so he listened to everything. And uh, he told me that he was really fascinated with the information. And I got an email from, and he told me that he was trying to teach himself physics and calculus, and it wasn't going so well. But then I got an email from him that said that he started using the strategies, especially the reading strategy, and he was doing very, very well. And it was actually fun for him now. And he said, you know, that the strategy was the ultimate divide and conquer. And it was just really exciting for him now to learn those subjects. And he was having difficulty with them before. And so for me, that's what being educated means, that I have some information now, but I can always learn something new just by using appropriate strategies and having, if if I'm interested in it, because the interest is the number one driver for whether or not you're going to learn something. Absolutely. It reminds me of teaching skills rather than content. Yes. And that was the other change that I made because I was a tutor as a graduate student and I was a very effective tutor, my students would say, and, you know, they, they did well, but back in those days, I think I was effective because I, I was a really good explainer, but I never taught students how they could learn the information themselves, which now I know is what the goal of a tutor should be. So I do a lot of tutor training workshops and we talk about the goal of a tutor is not explaining information, but teaching other students to be able to get the information and understand the information as well as you as a tutor can. So I love to let students know that they have the control, they have the power over what they're going to master. And it's not in the hands of a professor or a tutor or someone else. That's that you won't need to talk with these people because you will, but your ultimate learning is in your hands. We talk a lot at Wentworth about how everyone who works here is an educator. 
even if I don't work directly with students, I work with the faculty who work with students and in some mm -hmm. way I'm having an impact. So how have you seen that mentality of everyone who works at a university, whether they're a coach, res life, whatever it is, they are an educator. How have you seen that put into practice in meaningful ways? I actually do um, workshops. Uh, I haven't done this one lately, but I called it increasing student success. It takes the whole village. And so I talked about the different areas of the university. For example, the folks who are working in the cafeteria, the folks who are groundskeepers, they contact students all the time. And students are asking questions. Sometimes they may encounter a student who looks you know, really down. They can encourage that student. And if they know some learning strategies, then they could share those or at least uh, tell the student which office they should go to. So, so I really like the idea that we all think of ourselves as educators and having a role to play in student success. And yeah, that really works. And I, th I think it's really necessary because students need that total support from all different areas. Now, one question I have, speaking of tutoring, so at Wentworth, across the hall from us is this fantastic success studio, and they have tutors and academic success support. And, and our team, the Teaching and Learning Collaborative, works a bit more on the, with faculty and could be students or admin, but more, more often than not, it's faculty. <laughs> you know, we're slowly trying to build, build bridges and, and work with them a bit more closely together. So what are, what are some ways that kind of faculty support center and a student support center can really effectively collaborate and make programming that, you know, serves everyone at the university. Yes, I am so glad you asked that because there's a whole chapter in the book on partnering with your campus learning center. Because I find that in most institutions, the two units exist, but they do not collaborate at all. Some of the things that I suggest are, one is doing joint workshops because most times faculty are not aware of the strategies that learning centers teach to help students improve. When a student is having difficulty and a professor says, oh, well, you need to go over to the learning center because they will give you some tips. And I will ask faculty, if you told 10 students to go over to the learning center, how many of those 10 do you think would actually get themselves to the center? And what would your answer to that be, Josh? Probably one. Yeah, and usually they say one or two. And I said, yes. But if you know the strategies that we're teaching, then you can give it to all 10. And that's why I really like faculty to know what we do with students in the learning center, because a lot of the things that we talk about now really have only been recently uh, developed by cognitive science in the past you know, 20, 30 uh, 40 years, uh, because we have imaging uh, techniques now that allow people to see exactly how students are processing information. And that was also very gratifying to me, because when I first started doing this back in the early 2000s, I didn't know if faculty were going to resonate with this information or not. I was really gratified that they really enjoy it. They had not seen this part of it before. They loved Bloom's taxonomy as a a way to help their students understand about going, moving to higher learning levels. And so that's been really gratifying for me. And I also get uh, correspondences from faculty who were kind of like me and didn't think that it was that easy to get the class performance significantly higher. So I get emails from nursing professors, from many, many STEM professors, since my area is STEM. Not so much humanities folks, but I do occasionally get those. Uh, just recently, a music instructor indicated how she could use the reading strategy that I put in the book 
for her students who are preparing pieces, because one of the important things in the reading strategy is first do that overview. So you give your mind the big picture of what you're about to read. And she said that she realized that many students, if they're preparing a piece, they will focus on the first part of it because the first part is not necessarily as challenging as the, the middle part. And so they spend a lot of time getting that down. But then when they perform, then the piece kind of falls apart after the beginning. And so she says, now she tells them to, no, first do that overview, look at the entire piece of music and see what for you is gonna be the most challenging. And then you can decide how to allocate your effort so that you know you're spending enough time on the most challenging part so that the whole piece is, is going to be done well. And maybe I should say this because one faculty member said that the reason that they embraced what I was telling them in the workshop was because I said this. I said that there are some students for whom this does not work. The three categories of students for which this will typically not work is one is the student who refuses to take any personal responsibility for anything. They didn't pass the test because the teacher made it too hard. They didn't get a chance to study because their mother made them go to the grocery store. Uh, so if they refuse to take any personal responsibility, they're not going to do anything different because they don't think that it's their fault. It's somebody else's fault. But typically I can get students to, to see that's what they're doing because most times they don't see that. And then if they see that's what they're doing, I can move them to taking some personal responsibility. The second case is the student who has no time for any of this. If they're trying to take 28 hours working 60 hours a week, they have no time. And the strategies do take time. And so I help students with time management. And sometimes they've had to drop back on some hours. They might have to cut their work schedule a bit. But if, if they're willing to do that, then they can succeed, but they need time. The third category is the student for whom the gap between the skills they have acquired before getting in my class and the skills that are required to succeed in the class, that gap is just too great. So if I have a student in general chemistry who knows nothing about fractions, decimals, percents, there's no way they're going to succeed in general chemistry, no matter how much metacognition they put on it. And then somebody said, well, I have another category. And, and they, they were absolutely right. They said, it's the student for whom life issues are so challenging that they have no mental bandwidth to focus on academics. And so sometimes those students will have to drop back. They can come back to academics when those circumstances are no longer there, but it's just really hard to do it. But I find that for you know, 80, 85% of students, this stuff will work because they don't come into in any of those four categories. It's very wise to admit that it, this isn't necessarily going to work in every circumstance, but these are powerful tools that can have a strong impact on a lot of people a lot of the time. Another thing I really value about your work is you always bring this positivity and optimism in despite, you know, challenging situations. So I just want to ask you about that. Both you and your husband, you know, are really deeply spiritual people grounded in you know, religious, a religious tradition and community. And I just think it's so interesting, especially in our contemporary society, we think of, you know, science and religion sometimes as at odds. And you both mm -hmm. are very accomplished scientists and also deeply religious and spiritual folks. So I just wanted to ask you about your religiosity and just what that means to you and kind of how you reconcile something that in society sometimes is seen as on different poles, but you're living in a fully embodied way, both of these paths. For us, there really isn't a conflict between science and religion. 
I'm very guided by my spirituality and I, I really see what I do now as kind of a ministry, really. It's my way of helping others of God's creation reach the potential that he has placed in them. To me, the, the connection is really beautiful. Not that there's a conflict, but they really work in concert. As long as you recognize that you can never prove uh, anything in religion. You know, there are these people who want to prove these things. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. Science is the domain where we look for evidential proof. Our religion is based on our faith. That's wonderful. Yeah, it seems like it gives you a lot of strength and meaning and purpose in your life. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And, and I think it, it also keeps you from despairing. One of my favorite verses is James 1 and 2, count it all joy. You know, when you fall into diverse temptations, when bad things happen, then you can look at what's the benefit in that, which also, I guess, kind of relates to helping students recognize that failure is not failure. Things that happen to you that look like they are failure, but then you can turn it around and see how, no, you can grow from that. And that really does seem to be the essence and core of your work, that belief and and faith ultimately in your students and in every student's ability to to succeed and excel. Well, I have a couple, well, one, two last questions. One I ask everyone, and I, I just love to see what folks say. Dr. McGuire, tell me about the role that curiosity has played in your life. Ah, interesting. It has evolved because I would say early on, I wasn't that curious, I don't think. I kind of went along, and but now I'm really curious about, about everything because I see that there's so much more to learn. And when you're curious, it just opens your mind to seeing things, to learning things, to, to seeing things in a whole different perspective than you would if you were not curious. But I do think, though, that curiosity is sometimes a luxury. Because I think that if you are in a situation where you don't know where your next meal is coming from, you don't know where your next tuition dollar is coming from, then your bandwidth is so occupied that you don't have the bandwidth to just kind of be curious about things. But I do think that knowing about metacognition and the concept of metacognition opens up the possibility of being curious to more people. Absolutely. And, and the role of asking deep questions with regard to tutor training and training tutors not to give answers, but to ask questions that allow students to get the answers. And, and also just in your work as a scientist, you know, in, inquiry is at the root of the scientific enterprise. And there's a book, um, Scientific Teaching, that was written by Joe Handelsman and others. I don't know if you've heard of that. But basically what they're proposing is that faculty approach their teaching the way they approach science. You're curious about something. Will this work if I try this with this class and then just develop an intervention and see how it works? As opposed to so many science professors, they're very, very good at the research, but they just kind of give the same lectures year after year, don't really change anything. They complain that students aren't doing very well. Well, if students aren't doing well, come up with a hypothesis. What would improve learning? Try it out. You know, see what you get. As we wrap up, do you have any last things you'd like to share with us or any recommendations for our listeners? What I would want all faculty to really embrace is that all students have the 
ability, the capability to do very well. There's, I do a workshop on motivation. And uh, one of the things I say there is that in order to motivate students to really try, because efficacy is one of the main drivers of whether or not somebody's going to attempt to do something. If you think that you will be able to succeed, then you're going to put forth effort to do it. But if you think there's no way at all that you're going to be able to get this thing done, you're not going to try to do it because the brain says, I mean, that's ridiculous. If we know we can't do it, we're not going to spend any energy on that. And so I would like every faculty member to, and every parent, uh, every coach, everyone to embrace the idea that all students, every student can excel. And I will never forget, I was doing a workshop. I said, um, we need to embrace that every student can. I guess I was using succeed. Every student can succeed. And there was one faculty member there, he raised his hand and he asked a question that literally left me speechless. And I'm very rarely left speechless as you can probably tell. But he said, well, what if we know that not every student can succeed? And I was speechless because why would we admit anyone to our institution if we thought they couldn't succeed? But then it became clear to me that he was changing out one of the words in that sentence. He was saying, demonstrate confidence that every student will succeed. And I said, and that's not what I'm saying because I know that not every student will succeed, but I don't know who's gonna succeed and who's not. I've seen students come to college with a 4.3 GPA and flunk out the first semester. I've seen students come with a 2.3 high school GPA and finish with a 4.0. And so we've got to demonstrate confidence that every student can succeed because very often the only confidence students have is the confidence that we give them until they do well. We give them the strategies, they do well, then they have that internal confidence. But before that, we have to be their confidence. And if I could get everyone just to embrace that idea so that we don't have certain students who are told, well, you're never going to be good at that. And that, that statement is what's keeping them from being good at it, not that they couldn't do it. And I think that that's when we'll see a huge increase in student learning and the willingness for students to try the strategies because they know that, that we know that they can be successful and they'll believe that also. Well, Josh, let me just say that I have really, really enjoyed this. I'm so glad that you read the book and invited me to have this conversation with you because I have had, I've had a blast. I've really enjoyed speaking with you as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Sandra McGuire is an internationally acclaimed learning specialist, a professor emerita of chemistry, and a celebrated author in the field of education. And I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, a production of the instructional design team at the Teaching and Learning Collaborative here at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us. And as always, stay curious. funny because uh, I tell students today about how I was taught organic chemistry by Melvin Calvin, the person who came up with the Calvin cycle in biology. <laughs> yes, he was my organic chemistry professor. And they look at me like, you must be really old. That's like, you know, oh, uh, I learned about evolution from Charles Darwin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>